Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its themes and story, and then judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. Welcome to part seven of Gretter's Saga. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> okay, no, 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 no. It's actually time to move on to another saga. <laughs> oh, well, you know, now that you mention it, uh, I do have more material on Gretter if you'd like to yeah, get to it. Of course you do. <laughs> but we've nailed the lid shut on Gretter for now. No, I don't think you can use enough nails to keep Gretter down. He's going to keep coming back. Eh, true enough, true enough. Uh, we'll undoubtedly be seeing him again down the line. But we're ready for something new. So let's get to this episode saga. You want to hit the imaginary button? All right. In this episode of Saga Thing, we follow five noble adventurers and one coward as they journey to the new world. Yes, pack your bags, ladies and gentlemen, because this ship is headed straight for Vinland. Take your pick of our best captains. If you hurry, you can join the bumbling Bjarni Herjofsson as he makes his way to Greenland in search of his father. Oops, you've gone too far, Bjarni. You'll have to head back. Or maybe you'd prefer a trip with our famous Captain Leif the Lucky Ericsson. Occasional discoverer of North America, but don't tell Bjarni, he's the jealous type. And if you aren't lucky enough to catch a ride on Leaf's ship, there's plenty of time to hop aboard his brother Thorvald's ship. Why, you ask? Because everyone travels to Vinland on the same ship. Be careful when traveling with Thorvald, though. He doesn't get on well with the natives. No, not at all. Come to think of it, I'd recommend you stay away from Thorvald's expedition altogether. You'll be much more comfortable with his brother Thorstein as he tours the northern sea over and over again, never quite finding what he's looking for. I'm sure things will turn out well for old Thorstein if he can ever find land again. On second thought, you'll want to avoid Thorstein Eriksson's expedition as well. Wait, who's that? Why, it's the famous merchant Thorfinn Karlsefni. Look at his fine clothes and noble bearing. Surely he's the man to carry you to Vinland. Go ahead, climb aboard. There's no better captain for the trip. Be sure to say hello to all the natives when you arrive. I hear they're waiting for you. And last, but certainly never least, is Freydis, mother of the first European to be born in the New World. What an exciting and profitable adventure she leads. Perhaps you'd like to ride with her. I hear she's got a bit of extra room and is looking for a spare hand. One way or another, we'll get you to the New World. So pick your captain and your adventure begins as Saga Thing takes on... The Saga of the Greenlanders! Now, for those of you who have been listening to us since the beginning, well, first of all, in that case, you're probably married to one of us. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought your wife never listened to our podcast. Well, married to one of us. I didn't say which one. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. But uh, if she's listening, uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> but if you have if you have heard episode four of Saga Thing, then you might be wondering why we're covering this saga, since we already did the whole Vinland Saga thing about two years ago. Ah, uh, but that wasn't this Vinland Saga. Right. There are two of them. Yeah, the one we covered back in episode four was the saga of Eric the Red. And this one is the Greenlander saga, or the saga of the Greenlanders, depending on which order you want to do it. <laughs> Eric's saga is about a group of people who settle Greenland under the guidance of the nefarious Eric the Red, and then under the leadership of Eric's children, go on to explore and briefly settle in Finland. Now, the Greenlander saga, on the other hand, is the story of a group of people who settle Greenland under the guidance of Eric the Red, and then, under the leadership of Eric's children, go on to explore and briefly settle in Vinland. Uh, try again. I don't think that helped much. <laughs> no? <laughs> I'm not sure what will. I mean, these are two very different sagas, but they're superficially, at least, the same story. Mm -hmm. The only way to fully appreciate the differences is to dig into the details of each. Fortunately, that's what we're here for. Uh, but I think there are a few points we can make before we set sail for the new world once more. Uh, such as... Well, for starters, Eric the Red Saga really is the story of Eric's family. Uh, the trip to the New World comes about in the second half of the saga, but it's actually somewhat jarring after the first half focuses on the migration of Eric and his family and friends to Greenland and the famine and sickness they suffer there. Right. Uh, the first half feels like a traditional family saga to me. And then the tone changes yeah. dramatically once Eric gets to Greenland, where the living ain't so easy. But as we said last time, <laughs> the Greenland settlements were always right on the edge of the disaster curve. But given the environmental, social, and political troubles they encountered, it's pretty remarkable that the Greenland settlement lasted five centuries at all. And as far as we know, the Vinland expeditions that began in Greenland never lasted more than a few years. And I'm always surprised by that, given what's in Vinland. 
Right. Well, well, the Vinland groups had to deal with a much more robust native presence, uh, and of course, occasionally their own internal power struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll get to all of that soon enough. I mean, for such a short saga, Greenlander saga offers a lot of feuding and killing. But mm-hmm. uh, I think you were explaining Eric saga for some reason, so go ahead with that. Oh, right, right. Uh, so in Eric saga, Vinland is only discovered by accident when Leif Erikson is blown off course while trying to reach his father's settlement in Greenland, and he never really seems to care about what he found. It's left to a subsequent expedition under Leif's brother Thorvald and his sister Freydis, and of course the handsome merchant Thorfinn Karlsefni, to mm-hmm. return to Vinland and try to make a life there. And all of that's very different in the Greenlander saga. I mean, here we're going to get to the New World much more quickly. Uh, we're told of some half dozen voyages back and forth to Vinland, mm-hmm. and then uh, Eric's family's role in the exploration of Vinland is also much more at the center of this narrative. Right, but like Eric's saga, the Greenlander saga offers more questions than answers when it comes to the central question for most readers. Where exactly was Vinland? Well, the text may not have an answer, but I think we have one now, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, Now, as we briefly discussed in episode four, the problem for centuries was a combination of imprecise descriptions of the actual sea journeys and a set of maps discovered over the centuries that were mostly inaccurate or faked or both. But that didn't stop people from looking all over the northeastern coast of America trying to find the spot where, as the saga writer says, the land was so good it could supply both men and livestock with all they needed all year round. It's a pretty good place. And there actually is some very specific information in the sagas, or at least in the Greenlander saga. Absolutely. We're told, for example, that the first expedition settles in a spot near the headland where the days and nights were much more equal in length than in Greenland or Iceland. In other words, a place further away from the Arctic Circle, but still accessible mm-hmm. by a relatively short time at sea. And there's more information about the flora and fauna of the area, along with some surprises that we'll get to in the saga itself. Yeah, um, so several attempts were made over the years to track down the spot and to prove that the Icelanders and Greenlanders had made their way to North America. But it wasn't until the 1960s that a husband and wife team, Helga and Anastina Ingstad, were able to find and confirm the site. Now, we touched on we touched on this story uh, only briefly in Eric the Red's episode. Right, but there's a lot we didn't go into. Uh, so, apparently, Helga's strategy, he was in the habit of showing up in these villages in the middle of nowhere and just asking people, so, are there any ruins around here? Uh, and when he got to Lonson Meadow, the local village elder, a guy named uh, George Decker, said, oh, yeah, it's right over there. And that was <laughs> it. classic example... <laughs> The classic example of the importance of paying attention to local lore, isn't it? It really is. Uh, apparently, the Deckers had assumed the site was one of the long-abandoned indigenous settlements that are all over North America. Uh, they used to call it the old Indian uh, ruin. Mm-hmm. But the Ingstads got a look at the layout of the buildings and realized they might be onto something. And uh, you made it to that site this past summer, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, we'll save the rest of that story, the story of the settlement's discovery, for a special episode which we'll be putting up on the site in the next week or so. Uh, while I was up there, I was very, very fortunate to interview a remarkable woman named Loretta Decker, who works for the Canada Park Service. Uh, Loretta has a wealth of personal information about the site, partly because she's George Decker's granddaughter, mm-hmm. uh, the man whose farm the r- ruins were discovered on. Uh, she took the f- time to talk to me about all kinds of things related to the site. Yeah, and I've already listened to it, and it's a great conversation. She's got a wealth of stories. I'm really jealous that you got to talk she- to her. She really does. Uh, she's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, look for that to go up on the site soon. Uh, Loretta was very generous with her time, and she's the kind of person you can learn a lot from just by listening to her stories. Mm. I- I've been looking forward to posting that interview for a long while now. It's going to sound like our most podcasty podcast so far, if I splice it together right. <laughs> now, I'm shooting for kind of like a This American Life feel. Uh, but oh, keep good. in mind, I'm just a medievalist. My sound editing skills are somewhat limited, John. So anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. Um, so the settlement that the Ingstads found on George Decker's property, it's uh, its the site that is called Vinland in the sagas, right? As far as we know, yes. Uh, the settlement okay. is on the very, very northern tip of Newfoundland. So it's possible the name was meant to refer to the entire island. It's mm-hmm. a remarkable place. Uh, apparently it was more wooded in the 11th century, but now it's covered in ground growth berries nearly to the shoreline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the berries are delicious. Uh, cloud berries, which the locals call bake apples, are all over the place. Uh, and you could find just handfuls of them. Uh, I went for a hike along the shore at one point, and I nearly tripped over a pair of moose chilling out on the trail and just helping themselves to the berries. <laughs> Did you join them? 
for the party? <laughs> no. Uh, I backed away slowly and decided to enjoy the first half of the trail twice. Uh, I <laughs> well, did eat some were... berries on the way back, though. Oh, that's nice. So you weren't there to eat berries, though. No, no. Uh, the site itself is just amazing. Uh, the footprint of the original original settlement was preserved by the Ingstads and their crew, and a replica using local materials has been erected next to it. The, the layout is actually surprisingly familiar, and if more evidence were needed for the authenticity of the site, you can just go and look at archaeological digs in Iceland or Greenland or England, for that matter, and you'll see the same farm layout repeated over and over again. And there's even more evidence in the literature. Besides the two Vinland mm-hmm. sagas, there are a number of briefer references to the voyages in other texts. Chronologically, right. I think the first reference dates to maybe Adam of Bremen, who, mm-hmm. who wrote in uh, the 1070s that many had found Vinland. Which means that word of the new land had to have spread relatively quickly, right? to be mentioned so matter-of-factly in a text written within a couple of decades of the discovery. Well, sort of. Why sort of? Well, because the fact of Vinland's existence is known. Uh, but some parts of Adam's account are a little questionable. He describes uh, a land full of unsown corn and wine-producing grapes and and uh, a kind of paradise, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality, as we saw in Eric's saga and as we'll see again in this one, was a little bit more complicated than, than that. Right, okay, but that's that's a German account. Right? When did the Icelanders get mm-hmm. involved? Yeah, the uh, the first Icelandic reference is in about 1130 AD uh, when Ari Frothi mentions Vinland in the Islandica book. He says that the native Greenlanders encountered by Icelandic settlers there were kin to the Skrælings of Vinland. Skrælings is the mm. usual Old Norse term for the natives of Vinland. And after Ari, there are a number of further references in uh, Lannamabolk, in Erbigjus saga, in Olaf saga, and in Kristni saga. And it's also mentioned briefly in Heimskringla by Snorri Sturluson. But by then we have... The um, infamous Snorri Sturluson. Of course, the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Mm-hmm. But by this point, we're into the 13th century. And more than a century later, as we talked about last time, there's a reference in Greta's saga to a sailor who survived the voyage. And he later became known as Thorhall the Vinlander. There are, that's right, yes. And there, there are also a handful of other references in unrelated literature. For example, uh, Helga Ingstadt points out that there's an offhand reference to Thorfinn Karlsefni's trip to Vinland in a 12th century travel log about Jerusalem. It's kind of the long way around. Right, so it's all over the place. It's not like the Northerners were keeping this a secret. No, no, not at all. Um, it's it's enough to make you wonder about what kind of rumors people like Columbus were hearing even before 1492. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I know there's some evidence that one or more Portuguese ships had crossed the Atlantic in the decades before Columbus. Um, and I've read that Columbus might have even interviewed the navigator of one of those ships before he set out. Hmm. But there are also a lot of references to this Vinland around. Uh, whether Columbus knew the Norse sources directly or not, he lived in a world where seafarers had been telling each other stories about Vinland for centuries. Okay, but let's save the rest of the scholarly context for reading these sagas as history for the uh, the saga brief that we'll do with Loretta Decker's interview. Uh, is there anything okay. else we need to cover before we get started? Well, I mean, before we get started on the saga, I have to provide our saga length metric. Oh, that's right. Uh, so this is where John measures the saga according to how many Hrofenkel sagas it's equivalent to. Now, because of right. the summer of Grettir, it's uh, it's been a long time since we've measured anything in Hrofenkels. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm expecting a low number for this one, since Greenlander Saga is a featherweight text. Uh, that's a good assumption. Uh, Greenlander weighs in at a butterfly light 0.71 Hrofenkels sagas, uh, which makes it the mm. shortest saga we've covered yet. Well, I suppose this makes a nice change of pace from the monster that was Grettir's saga, but it is kind of puny. Almost laughable in size. I I prefer to think of it as fun-sized. There you go. Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, let's get it started, shall we? All right. uh, So our plan is not to keep comparing this saga to Eric the Red Saga. Uh, There are certain similarities, but honestly, what's remarkable is how unalike they are, considering that they're supposed to be about the same thing. Right. So we're going to keep the references to Eric's saga to a minimum. If you're interested in comparing the two sagas more seriously, there's a handy table in the introductory material of Penguin's Vinland Sagas, and I encourage you to look there, or to just loosen up your fingers and start Googling. You know, the interwebs are a great source of information. Or just listen to episode four again. (laughs) You could listen to episode four, that's a good idea. Uh, Now, of course, having said all that, I have to begin by pointing out that these introductions are totally different. See, now, this is why we can't have nice things. I mean, why bother making a rule if you're just going to break it right away? It's not even been a minute. Okay, okay. Uh, but I think this is important. Eric the Red Saga right. begins with Eric's travels 
and his bad habit of killing virtually everyone who lives within an angry shout of him. And yet, the saga itself really isn't centered on Eric or his family. This saga, on the other hand, puts Eric's kids at the center of the action most of the way through, and yet it ignores Eric's life story. Now, wait a minute. I don't think you're being entirely fair there. Yeah, why is that? Well, because the beginning of the saga we read today is corrupted. I mean, somewhere oh, along the way, the actual beginning of the saga got lost. Yeah, I know. There goes my Hrovenkel measurement. <laughs> Sorry, pal. You know, it's still accurate for what we have. But uh, the lost beginning, at least according to Jonas Christensen, likely told the discovery uh, and settlement of Greenland in more detail. And that would mean a more in-depth look at Eric the Red's adventures in Norway and Iceland. Right, quite likely. But that is just conjecture. Oh, well, of course it's conjecture. Uh, the point is only that the abrupt beginning of the saga that we have doesn't necessarily represent the beginning of the original saga. Mm-hmm. All we have is the, the one copy of the saga as it appears in the expanded version of uh, the saga of Olaf Tryggvason in the 14th century Flatteyer book. Okay, now that's a fair point. I, I, I will retract my complaint about the beginning. Uh, but Thank what you. do you have to say about the fact that the saga of the Greenlanders gives credit for finding Vinland to someone who isn't a member of Eric's family? Now, that is an interesting difference between the two sagas. Uh, we, we celebrate Leif Erikson Day every October 9th. And wait, it's wait, wait, the, wait, 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 wait. You, you celebrate Leif Erikson Day? Well, I don't think that's any of your business. Well, I think it is my business. Leif is one of my thingmen. Uh, and now you've got me imagining you reenacting the Norse Discovery of America in your bathtub every October 9th. <laughs> Great. Now, I am fairly convinced you must have cameras in my house. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Leif Erikson Day, John, do you remember way back when we had talked about uh, doing Greenlander Saga so that we could post it on October 9th in memory of Leif's voyage? This was way, way yeah, long ago. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that. Uh, I also remember that you then added an extra episode of Gretter's Saga for the epilogue, and then we both got lost under a pile of student papers. And now here we are in late November, finally getting around to it. Well, you know, happy belated Leif Erikson Day, everyone. <laughs> for he's a jolly good Norseman, for he's a jolly good Norseman, for he's a jolly good Norseman. Which nobody can deny. There you go. Now, <laughs> it's the thought that counts, Leif. I hope you're not too disappointed. Especially since we're doing the saga that really undercuts your whole role in the discovery of North America. I mean, to add insult to injury, we're covering the saga that says Bjarni Herjofsson discovered this continent by accident while chasing his father to Greenland. <laughs> oh, well, Leif. Sorry, Leif. Uh, let's jump into the saga for real this time, okay? All right, well, yeah, I mean, you're the one that started comparing things. I was ready five minutes ago. Silence. Part 1. The Voyage of Bjarni Herjolfsson. Okay, so the saga begins with a man named Bjarni Herjolfsson. Bjarni's father, Herjolf, is uh, one of the Icelanders who follow Eric the Red to Greenland. But uh, Bjarni's away on a trading voyage, and no one's told him that his father's moved. So when Bjarni returns to Iceland to spend the winter at his dad's house, he's a little confused to learn that dear old dad has pulled up stakes and relocated to Greenland. So I I guess Bjarni wasn't so good at taking hints, huh? Right. There's only so many times everyone can leave the room when Bjarni enters before they eventually just have to leave the country. Poor Bjarni. <laughs> now, none of this is in the saga, of course, and I'm sure right. Bjarni's a very nice guy. We're just reading into maybe, it. Maybe, maybe, perhaps. Uh, but Bjarni finds himself in an awkward situation all the same. You see, Bjarni's never been to Greenland and has only the most basic idea of how to get there. Okay, now, now I'm starting to think our little joke might have some merit then. I mean, what kind of father <laughs> leaves his son and moves to Greenland, likely knowing full well that his son has no idea how to get there? Well, that's a question for Herjolf. Uh But this little obstacle is not going to stop the stalwart Bjarni. He and his crew set off at a bad time of year, right late in the season, on an ocean voyage into unknown waters. What could go wrong? Well, a lot. A lot could go wrong. This guy's (laughs) clearly an idiot. You don't leave him. Absolutely. Uh, And it doesn't take long for things to fall apart. Uh, Not long after setting sail, the ship sails into a fog at sea and gets totally lost. They do their best to navigate, eventually spotting land. But the land doesn't quite match the descriptions of Greenland the sailors have heard. Now, this saga is setting up the discovery very differently from what uh, went on in Eric's saga. But yes. in both cases, the initial discovery is an accident when a ship gets lost on its way to Greenland. Yeah, uh, both writers seem to know the rough outline of what happened, but they're kind of filling it in with their best guesses or, you know, whatever they've heard about the voyages. 
Yeah, we have to assume that oral history must play a major role in the development of the Vinland discovery narrative. Uh, It's possible that the authors of the Vinland sagas are working from separate traditions, though. Well, true, although there are other equally plausible explanations. The author of Eric the Red Saga seemed to have a more vested interest in Eric and Leif, so it makes more sense that he'd adjust things to have Leif make the discovery. Either way, the Bjarni Herjolfsson version certainly lacks a certain something, uh, so mm-hmm. I can understand why someone looking to enhance the narrative might might want to change things up a little bit. Okay, so uh, Bjarni and his crew do spot land, but they don't think it looks like Greenland, so on they sail. Right. And just like me when I'm lost, they stubbornly keep going in the direction <laughs> that they shouldn't be going. <laughs> right. They, they spot land again two days later, but again, it doesn't look quite right, so they sail on further. Yes, well, well sort of. Um, at this point... Bjarni wants to sail on, but his men are starting to grumble a bit. They'd like to get off the ship and stretch their legs, and maybe do a little exploring. But ships aren't democracies, John, so if the ship's owner says sail on, you sail on. Right, but now there's some discontent and complaining from the crew, but they sail on. And then a third land comes into view, and this one's got glaciers on it. Sounds like Greenland. Well, then it's a good thing you weren't in charge of the ship. Bjarni again decides that they're in the wrong place. So he apparently he knows the, the, the land, even though he's never mm-hmm. been to Greenland. So I don't know. Yeah, how right. This so guy who's never seen Greenland. He's got a good sense of it. But they keep sailing. And then finally, mm-hmm. a fourth land comes into view after four days sail. And this time, Bjarni thinks it is Greenland. Now, he's right. It is Greenland. But I kind of wanted him to be wrong. This chapter has plenty <laughs> of sailing, but it's, uh, it's short on an adventure. Yeah, well, the author seems to be working to establish some sense of scale and distance here at the beginning of the chapter. There's a lot of slightly technical stuff about heading and wind speed and Mm -hmm. distance that we're not going to get into, but the impression I get is that you'd be able to find your way around all these places if you knew where to start. Right. So so this chapter is the One-Eyed Willie's map of the sagas. Well, that's a very specific reference. Well, Well, we have to do something to liven this up. Bjarni's terribly disappointing as a saga figure. He finds his way to his dad's new place, and that's the end of the story. I mean, can you can you imagine the look on his father's face when Bjarni walks in all wide eyed and eager? <laughs> dad, Dad, it's me. I bet you thought I was lost. Oh Christ! I bet I wish you had been lost. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone promptly gets up and leaves Bjarni standing there all alone, <laughs> arms spread open, waiting for Aww. a hug from his dad. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just making me sad. Uh, so uh, yeah. Bjarni moves in, gives up sailing, and eventually takes over the farm when his dad dies. And that's it for Bjarni, right? I mean, he's out of the saga, he discovered the new world, and we're done with him. No, no not quite. Uh, a few years after his father dies, Bjarni sails to visit Earl Eric in Norway, and he happens to mention this little sailing accident. And everyone just mm-hmm. makes fun of him mercilessly for not going on shore and checking out these new lands. I told you this guy was a loser. Yeah, no, uh, and when he returns to Greenland, people start talking about making an intentional voyage to actually check out these lands that he turned his nose up at. And so we finally get to the Ericsons now. Well, uh, just one of them for the moment. Right. Eric has four children in this saga. Uh, he's got three sons named Leif, Thorvald, and Thorstein. And there's also his daughter named Freydis, who you won't forget. Leif mm-hmm. Erikson, in particular, is an impressive fellow, though. The saga starts with him and says that he's large, strong, wise, and of a striking appearance, with a habit of moderation in all things. Uh, nothing as exciting as a guy who's really into moderation in all things. I'm really curious how he and Gretchen will get along in your Thingman parties. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine Leif will, will be very, very quiet. <laughs> and dead. Now, uh, Leif is going to be important for a while now. Um, right. We're told that uh, Bjarni's boat is part of a plan to retrace his journey. So uh, Leif hires a 35-man crew and invites his father to come along on the trip. Eric's reluctant to go on a sea voyage in his old age, and when his horse stumbles on the way to the ship, he takes it as a sign that he's not meant to travel. I'm not intended mm-hmm. to find any other land than this one, he says. And then he turns around and goes home. Now, there's a slightly different version of this same scene in Eric's saga where I think Eric gets injured, but in both cases, Eric stays home. Right. Now, it has to be said that Eric's not much of a savage murdering rogue in this saga. He's more like a crotchety grandpa whose rheumatism is acting up. It it almost makes me feel bad about outlawing him in his own saga. 
No, he was uh, pretty bloodthirsty in that version. I think he deserved it. No, it's true, but but now he just wants a hot water bottle and a cozy spot by the fire. Ah, yes. Part two: The Voyage of Leif Erikson and Bjarni's ship. So Leif sets sail without Eric the Red, and on his way he visits the lands Bjarni saw, but in reverse. This time we get some more elaborate descriptions of the lands they encounter. Mm-hmm. The first one, which is the one with the glaciers, has no grass and has land like a uh, like a single flat slab of rock from the glaciers to the sea. And so Leif names this place Heluland, or Stone Slab Land. Right, because he's not good at naming stuff. <laughs> yes, but at least he and his men got off their boat and checked things out this time. I mean, this, And then the uh, the second land that they encounter is flat and heavily forested. And being the clever chap that he is, Leif names it Markland, mm-hmm. which means, wait for it, forest land. Seriously, he sucks at names. Ah, here is my dog, which I name Dog. And here is my cat, which I call Small Furry Fish-Eating Mammal. <laughs> well, you know, maybe the names are meant to help future explorers find their way. I mean, how, how's a sailor supposed to remember some elaborate and poetic name? Uh, it's, it's probably much better if he sails by a flat, rocky land and thinks, hey, that's uh, Stone Slab land. And that foresty land over there, that must be forest land. Right, because what are the chances they'll find any other land with, say, trees or rocks on it? Like, these are the only places that fit those descriptions. <laughs> Okay, now moving on. They sail on for two more days before arriving at the third land. This one's a little bit different. It's got tons of green growth for livestock, salmon are plentiful in its streams, and it doesn't seem to get as cold as it does back home. Right, but so what's he going to name this one? Greenland's already taken. Uh, maybe Salmon Stream Land? Well, you know, I'm quite partial to tons of green growth for livestock land. Just rolls <laughs> off the tongue. It's beautiful. <laughs> but actually, he doesn't name it at first. That's probably for the best, really. So so Leif and his crew decide to spend the winter at this spot, and once they've built shelter, they have time to start exploring the environment around them. Now, what about the whole food for the winter thing? Shouldn't they be Well, I mean, that too, that? obviously. Right? But there's it's not that hard. There's salmon everywhere, wild game, plants, fresh water. And they're learning things like that whole latitudinal observation about the even spacing of the sunrise and sunset times. You can almost see Leif thinking ahead about getting others to come join him on this land. Right. Come to sunny Vinland. We have actual sun. (laughs) It's a quirk of the story that in this version, because uh, Bjarni didn't actually get off his ship and claim the land, that Leif's got the right to claim pretty much whatever he likes. So the houses that he and his men build are as much about laying claim to the land as building shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously anything that makes the new place sound appealing is going to help him draw new settlers to a place where he's the big man and the default chieftain. Right, now that's a good point. We have to remember that Leif's father establishes the settlement on Greenland. So either he's trying to one-up his father by settling a farther and richer land, or he's just carrying on a family tradition of settling new places. Now, remember that we're only about uh, three generations or so away from the end of the settlement period in Iceland, and Eric himself had been a Norwegian expat. Well, an exile, really. Right, and uh, Greenland's only been settled by Norsemen for a few years. I mean, we shouldn't think of Iceland or Greenland as places with long and rich traditions or a great claim on the hearts of their people just yet. Right, absolutely. If this new land offers a better life and deeper resources than Iceland or Greenland, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't become a new settlement destination. And if he's trying to advertise the place, it's about to get a public relations boost in a big way. In a big way, you say? Public relations boost? (laughs) Right. One day, a German named Türker who's an old friend of Leif's father, Eric, and is along on the trip, disappears without a trace. Now, Leif's going to be pretty upset about this. He's fond of Türker, but he also had given orders that no one was to be allowed to wander off on his own because they don't know what dangers might be around on the on this land. Yeah, you can see why he'd get upset. Uh, a lone man getting himself killed is a blow to their manpower, of course, but more importantly, it's a useless loss. I mean, if they find mm-hmm. him dead, they don't know how he died, and therefore they don't know what the danger is. Right, you make it sound kind of mercenary. Uh, Leif's not Beowulf sacrificing a friend to Grendel to learn the monster's tactics. He's actually worried about Turker. Well, of course he's worried about Turker, but he wouldn't be a good leader if he weren't also thinking about the bigger picture. Um, But at the same time, I think we're reading a little bit much into Leif's frustration. I I honestly think he's just, he just wants that crazy German to stay nearby and not cause any trouble. (laughs) Well, in any case, there's good news. 
Just as a search party is organized and heading out to look for his bones, Turkir wanders back into the settlement, and he's clearly pretty happy about something. Why something? Well, no one knows what it is at first. Right? Turkir is German, and he's babbling away in his native language. No oh, one else on the right. trip speaks German, so they have to wait a while until he starts speaking Norse again. And when he does, he's got some big news. Bigger than grapes? Wait, what? No, no, no. That's the news. You you ruined the surprise. Oh, what, what surprise? It's called Vinland. We've been calling it Vinland the whole episode. <laughs> it's not actually all that clear what Turkir actually means when he said he had only gone a bit further than the others before he had found grapes and grapevines. Yeah, there are actually a number of questions we could ask here. For example, what does he mean by grapes? There are quite a few hanging fruits with berries growing wild in the northeast of North America, and plenty of bush-based berries as well. Say that Uh, three times fast. Right, bush-based berries, yeah. Uh, Of course, Turkir does say that he knows the grapes because they grew commonly in the land where he was born. Uh, Now, one more point is that Turkir is apparently drunk, or at least tipsy when he returns to the group. Right. Not only is he reverted to speaking German, but his eyes are darting out in every direction, and his face is contorting wildly. I have some questions. First of all, that's drunk? Well, I think so. I mean, it's certainly odd. Helga Ingstad says of this section that Turkir seems almost to be intoxicated. Okay, almost. But, I mean, Turkir didn't find a winery. At best, even if we accept the grapevine reading of the text, he found mm. some grapes. Are, are we supposed to believe that they were fermenting naturally on the vine or something? Well, I mean, certainly that growing. can happen, right? I mean, that can happen. Uh, but even granting that they Show were me. grapes, the known native species of grapes wouldn't have made very pleasant wine anyway. They're too sour. Well, I doubt they have very uh, distinctive palates. Uh, but uh, <laughs> is that true? Yeah, no, there's actually a really interesting book about this called The Botanist and the Vintner that talks in part about the sourness of the Native American grape. It's worth a read. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get right on that. Well, okay, but in any case, what we've got in this story is probably just an ideological story anyway. Okay, now I'm going to have to ask you to say that again, but use more words, because ideological isn't a term that everyone's going to be familiar with, Smarty. Okay, uh, (laughs) so it's what Rudyard Kipling called a just-so story, a story with the point of explaining why something is the way it is, or why it has the name it does. So it's essentially then a justification of the name Vinland. Yeah, it seems likely. Uh, the early sources okay. do seem to push the grapes angle. Uh, Adam of Bremen believes it's literally wine land, for example. Uh, but that version and the one in this saga, they're pretty clearly attempting just to explain the name. Right? They're sort of handed this name Vinland and they have to figure out what it means. Uh, for one thing, Turkir is otherwise totally irrelevant to the narrative. Right? He, to- he shows up in order to introduce the grapes and that's it. Showing that he's drunk just helps to underline the significance of the grapes by linking them to the primary use for which they were known to the author's audience. Hmm. But in any case, the the grapes that he's talking about could mean almost anything. I mm-hmm. mean, we're dealing with uh, a German speaking to Norse speakers in a text written 300 years after the events took place. I mean, I'm not necessarily willing to trust the historical accuracy of every detail in this oh, yeah, no. saga. Of course, that's fair. Uh, and there's been debate for a long time about the name Vinland which Leif now names the area where they've settled. It might mean Vinberland, uh, which would be something like wild current land or gooseberry land. And there are definitely gooseberries growing in that area today. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Man, I wish the name had stuck because I, I, for one, would love to be a gooseberryan instead of an American. <laughs> I mean, just imagine how cool our flag would look. And delicious. <laughs> and uh, and so Turkir says that his people made wine from this fruit, but that's mm-hmm. also not really specific. Scandinavians right. traditionally make wines from all sorts of wild berries and things. Absolutely. Uh, and there's also the argument that the name is Vinland as opposed to Vinland with a short I, in which case it would mean something more like Meadowland. Uh, but more recent scholars tend to reject that explanation. Well, ultimately, the wineberries explanation seems pretty convincing, I guess. Just to move forward, yeah. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, no, I, I actually do agree that that's the most likely explanation. Uh, but there are other questions to be asked about this story, like how far Turkir traveled. Uh, he says he didn't go far, but it's not entirely clear how long he's been gone, and he would have had to travel quite a long distance from Lanza Meadow to find wild grapes. I mean, we're talking several hundred yeah. miles here. Well, you know, there there are suggestions that the Norse settlers might have gotten farther south, I mean, maybe as far south as uh, St. John in New Brunswick. 
Right. No, at least. Uh, I mean, hell, there's a spot in Dighton, Massachusetts that a couple people have claimed mm-hmm. has evidence of Thorfinn and Carl Stephanie making it that far south. But uh, we need to get back to the saga here. Okay, so uh, let's see. Leif is obviously excited about the whole grapes thing, and he fills mm-hmm. his ship with grapes and with cuttings from the plants before heading home in the spring. And his plan is to return to Greenland in triumph, but uh, he's going to be diverted on the way back. Why? Those grapes aren't going to stay fresh forever, you know. Actually, I, sh- I should say that Brigitte Wallace suggests that those grapes packed onto the ships were probably already in liquid form. Like they'd pressed them mm. so they were carrying grape juice or wine. But I, that's pretty clearly speculation on her part. Right. So on, on his way home, he spots several sailors way off on the horizon clinging to a scary in the ocean. And he's apparently got really keen eyesight to see this. Right. Nobody else spots it. Just him. Yeah. He sails up to the scary, exchanges names with the group's leader, who's a man named uh, Thorir the Norwegian. And then he invites Thorir, his wife Guthrid, and, uh, and their crew to come aboard with their salvaged cargo. Fifteen people in total are rescued altogether. Yeah. In total. And everyone seems together. really casual about the whole rescued from a rock in the ocean thing. Thor's response mm-hmm. to hearing Leif's name is, is, Say, aren't you the son of Eric the Red of Brotherlead? I, I have expected them to start pulling out pictures of their kids. So uh, after this, everyone gets back to Greenland safely, and Leif gets the name Leif the Lucky for his rescue effort. Well, Leif may be lucky, but Thorir definitely isn't. Yeah, he's got Norwegian companion written all over him. Yeah, uh, that winter and illness sweeps the Greenland settlement. Thorir is among the first to die, and Eric the Red actually dies of the disease as well. You know, uh, we're a third of the way through the saga already, and there hasn't been a single violent death yet. Oh, we've still got time. Besides, the Ericsons aren't done voyaging to Vinland. Part 3. The Voyage of Thorvald Ericsson and Bjarni's ship again. Now, Leif's brother Thorvald borrows the ship and takes 30 companions to explore the land further. Now, this is already the third expedition, and this is going to be a longer trip. Thorvald's planning to spend several years in Vinland, and really get a sense of the area, maybe settle it a little bit. Right. Now, like like the others, Thorvald's voyage is relatively uneventful, and he begins exploring. His men find only a single sign of native life, a wooden grain trough on an otherwise deserted island. Otherwise, their experience is the same as Leif's during the first year, and they're delighted by the richness of Vinland. Now, you'd really think that everyone from Greenland would just move here already. I mean... How many winters of starvation, disease, and hunting on glaciers would you have to endure before the Edenic paradise on the other side of the water starts to seem a little bit tempting? <laughs> I'd imagine even the the Icelanders who are pretty comfortable would be excited by the news of Vinland's bounty. Right, no, it's, it's a good question. Now, on the other hand, Thorvald and his crew are about to find that life in Vinland has its own dangers. Shortly mm-hmm. after Thorvald finishes building himself a farmhouse at a place called Kjallarnes, he and his men find three beached boats nearby. Underneath are nine men, the first natives the Norsemen have found. The saga is right. about to get pretty good. Yeah, no, the Lonsa Meadow site really does a nice job of pointing out the significance of this moment. Uh, if you accept the land bridge argument for how the peoples of the Americas came over from Asia, which I do, and I think most people do, then this moment is when the two branches of mankind that headed off in opposite directions tens of thousands of years before finally meet again on the far side of the world. You know, that's really cool, actually. I like imagining them parting with a wave way back when, and here they are again. Sadly, uh, what happens next is hardly a warm family reunion. No. (laughs) No. You know, this is one of those real distinctions between the the two sagas, by the way. In Eric's Mm -hmm. saga, the first contact with the indigenous people is under a flag of truce, and Thorfinn and Karl Zephny's crew trades with the natives peacefully for a while before things eventually go south. In Greenlander's saga, it all goes to hell, right? Like, right away, as soon as mm-hmm. they see someone. Thorvald's men capture eight Skraelings, as they call them, and kill them immediately. Right. But, but of course, there were nine Skraelings, uh, which is obviously a problem. Well, it's hardly the only problem. Well, yeah. I mean, for example, I don't fully understand why they killed those eight guys. I mean, forget about letting one of them get <laughs> away. Why they kill those eight? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, again, we're seeing the difference in the sagas. Eric's saga is about merchants and traders, but mm-hmm. Greenlander's saga is mostly about explorers and fighters. Both groups react to an unexpected development more or less how you'd think they would. Merchants try to sell stuff to the natives, <laughs> and the warriors see them as a threat, so they kill them. 
Right. Well, of course, now they're a threat. <laughs> of course. The Thorvald's crew doesn't necessarily know that, though. So they return to their ship where then they're overcome suddenly with a, a strong desire to sleep. Right. Now, I think we've mentioned before that, that irresistible sleep in the sagas is usually a sign of either magic or fate at work. Yeah, it seems to be fate in this case. Thorvald and his men are suddenly awakened by a mysterious voice that calls out to them. Wake up, Thorvald. Wake up, companions, if you wish to save your lives. Get to the ship with all your men and leave this land as fast as you can. Right, now, sadly, <laughs> this uh, this disembodied voice is a little late. And so, as these men wake up, the bay is already filling with boats full of angry natives. Understandably angry, I'd say. Oh, sure, yeah. But we're, we're not we're not actually invited to feel tremendous sympathy for the native perspective here. Right? No. There's a short skirmish with the Norsemen defending a breastworks they set up by their boat while the natives shoot at them. Eventually, the attackers get bored and leave, and the only casualty is Thorvald Eriksson. He's hit in the ribs with an arrow and dies after asking his men to bury him on his new farm. Now, it's late in the season, so the rest of the men decide to wait out the winter. But in the spring, they head back to Greenland, and they tell Leif the news of his brother's death. Yeah. Um, so, with Eric's death, what's happened is that Leif has become the default chieftain of the Greenland settlement. But it's going to be the third brother, Thorstein Eriksson, who will try to return to Vinland to collect his brother's body. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the fourth expedition, but he's still going to use the same ship that his brothers have used before him, the one that originally belonged to uh, Bjarni Herjolfsson. Now, is this is this the only ocean-going ship in Greenland? It might be the only ship in Greenland available, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it does seem to be more talismanic. It, it's already made the trip, so maybe it's like a good – it's good luck to go in that ship. It kind of knows the way. Well, I mean, if if that's Thorstein's logic, he's in for a nasty surprise. And on that cliffhanger... Part 4. The Voyage of Thorstein Eriksson. And, once again, Bjarni's ship. (laughs) Now, Thorstein has recently married Gudrid, the widow of Thor the Norwegian. And he takes her and 25 other men with him on Bjarni's ship. But unlike the previous voyages, this one hits trouble right away. It loses its bearings, and the ship spends the entire summer and fall sailing around in search of land. Finally, just as winter's beginning, they spot land ahead, but it's Greenland again. Oh, that would be so frustrating. (laughs) You're already on the boat the entire summer, Mm -hmm. and then you finally see land, and it's Greenland? Of all the places. (laughs) Right. And to make matters worse, it's not their part of Greenland. They've landed on the western coast, and they're very, very lost and it's too late to, in the year to try again, so they've got to find some place to stay. Right. Now, Thorstein and Gudrith end up staying with a farmer named Thorstein the Black and his wife Grimild for the winter. But it's not long before disease once again ravages the Greenland communities. This time, most of Thorstein's men die. Seriously, now, why does anyone stay in these communities? That's a good Greenland question. sounds like the worst place in the world. What are they doing? Yeah, it's, it's a legitimate question. Um... The next to die is Thorstein Black's wife, Grimild, and when Thorstein Eriksson sees her corpse trying to rise from its bed and find its shoes, his own illness gets worse, and he dies shortly after her. <laughs> Grimild's corpse looking for its shoes is one of those great details that the sagas are full of. I just love this right. scene. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's meant to be horrific, but the <laughs> I think the horror is very culturally specific. Uh, most of us would be terrified of a walking corpse, whether or not it was barefoot. I think the fact that it's looking for its shoes makes it seem less harmful. I think it probably ties into the whole, the the mythic thing about the dead men's shoes, right? And the uh, mm. uh, the idea that, like, once you build shoes for the dead, you're sort of getting that much closer to the end of the world kind of thing. I have no idea what you're talking about. But Thorstein's corpse is also pretty lively. And when he's laid out for burial, his widow Guthrith hears him calling to her. And she sits by his side along with Thorstein the Black. So so the people who die in this plague, their bodies are only mostly dead? Well, I thought I thought we weren't doing Princess Bride references anymore. Didn't we tap those all out? <laughs> Never. No, they're dead all right. But, uh, but in Thorstein's case, he's got an important message for his wife. So something before he goes. True. 
no, no. He he actually tells her her future. Uh, he tells her that she will remarry. She will mar- marry an Icelander, in fact, and the two of them will live a long and happy life together. They'll have many descendants, and eventually Guthrith herself will travel to Rome on pilgrimage and make it safely back to Iceland, where she'll die an old woman, I believe, as an anchorite. Uh, oh, right. So, okay, so this is this saga's version of the whole prophecy scene from Eric's saga. I suppose this means yeah. we won't be seeing Thorbjorg the prophetess in this version. No, but it does mean that Guthrith's life is going to play out in pretty much the same way in this version, at least from this point forward. Well, she doesn't have to wait long for evidence that Thorstein's prophecy is true. The following summer, Guthrith, who returns to Leif Erikson's farm in part to return her husband's body, meets a wealthy Norwegian named Thorfinn Karlsefni, and the two of them get married very quickly. Well, it's nice that she found someone again. Such a nice guy, too. I thought so. Yeah, uh, but I imagine she's probably a little bit worried when Thorfinn almost immediately announces that he's going to follow in Thorstein's path and try to make it to Vinland. This is going to be the largest group to make the trip yet. Uh, Thorfinn brings 60 men, 5 women, and enough livestock and goods to try to settle permanently in the new, new world. Part 5. The Voyage of Thorfinn Karlsefni and Gudrun Thorbjarna's Daughter. And a new ship! So, this is expedition number five, for those of you counting along. But uh, 60 men and five women seems a little lopsided for a permanent settlement, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, poor women. I, I, I suppose one element in the logic is that many Vikings found wives while raiding. And perhaps there's a thought of that here, although I don't know where mm. they think they'd be raiding. And honestly, Thorfinn's not really a Viking. Right? He's a businessman. He's no. a shipping magnate. And so they're probably not really prepared for any serious raiding. So it's just a mistake on their part. Well, ultimately, it's not going to matter a whole lot because this voyage isn't going to be any luckier than the last couple. You're you're starting to get frustrated with these guys, aren't you? Well, you know, there's a pattern developing and this is getting a little bit uh, repetitive. No, I, I think the problem, and it's a lot clearer in this version than in Eric's saga, is that each group has to deal with the reputation of the previous group making for them. I think the problem, and it's a lot clearer in this version than in Eric's saga, is that each group has to deal with the reputation the previous groups have made for themselves. That's an interesting point. Thorfinn's group is probably the most peaceful to arrive so far, but they're also the largest. And since the Skraelings don't really have any context for these strange bearded guys, apart from violence, there's no reason to assume that a larger group of them is going to be anything but more violence. Uh, and that's what I mean about this pattern. Right. Well, in some ways, Karlsefni's group is a return to the idyllic experience of Leif's group. They spend their first <laughs> year cutting lumber, collecting whale meat, uh, finding fish, game, and, and of course, grapes. Life is good. Well, at first. Hey, a year of peace and quiet isn't to be sneezed at. I mean, at least they're not spending the winter dying of disease in Greenland, which is a nice (laughs) change of pace. That's right. So in the spring, a large group of native people show up at the edge of the encampment. And even though neither side can understand the other, they manage to establish peaceful intent, though the native men are clearly tense. and Yeah, well, again, it's not hard to understand why. Yeah. And Carl Zefni wisely refuses to trade any metal or weapons to the natives, but manages to convince them to trade skins and other goods for some of the Norsemen's milk and milk products. Right. Now, all that goes well, but as soon as the Skraelings leave, Carl Zefni's group starts work on a defensive wall. They're a little mm-hmm. bit worried as well. Uh, and in the meantime, Carl Zefni's wife, Gudrith, give, gives birth to a boy who they name Snorri. Now, Snorri is the first European born in North America. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that the name Snorri means troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, later in the year, there's a second trading visit, this time with a larger group of natives. And during this visit, there's uh, a bit of supernatural weirdness that we should talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't know what to make of this at all. Yeah, as the men are making deals with the natives, Guthrith is sitting in her hut with her baby. Then another woman enters the room suddenly. She's short and pale with red hair and has the largest eyes that Guthrith has ever seen. And this is not one of the people that they came to the New World with. No. This is someone who's been living there. Right. Now, well, maybe, right? I mean, this woman, or whatever she is, is seriously weird. She approaches Guthrith and says, 
What is your name? My name is Guthrith. And what is yours? My name is Guthrith. So that's your spooky voice? That's what you're doing? <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> well, anyway, the woman suddenly disappears. And at the same moment, one of the Norsemen kills a Skraling in an argument. And then mm-hmm. the rest of the natives run off. And, and now the settlers know there's trouble coming. Big right, trouble. Right, so... So is the weird woman, she clearly isn't supposed to be a native, right? I mean, this, is this a, a fulgia, a spirit of some kind? Well, I, she sort of has to be, I guess. Uh, the question's whether she's there as a guardian spirit for Guthrith and the Norsemen, or whether she's a kind of spirit guardian for the Vinland natives. Yeah, I'm not sure about this one. I mean, she's clearly not hostile, but there's something really off about the way she interacts with Guthrith. Well, that's because you gave her a crazy weird voice. Well, <laughs> I never the, thought of the, her the, is that strange? Oh my god, it's so creepy. Walking into the room and saying, what is your name? And then saying, and then whatever name you give, that's my name too. <laughs> it's so creepy. Well, ultimately, I think the weirdness of the interaction is the point. Right, okay. So, so while Guthrie is being creeped out by random spirits, the men are preparing for an attack. Uh, they don't have much time because the natives are returning in large numbers. There's a short fight but the Norsemen come up with a clever idea of charging into the fight behind their bull because they know their livestock worries the Skraelings. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> it's been too long since we've seen one of these cows leading the charge moments. Yeah, I thought you'd be pleased by that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's all I ask, really. I mean, I, I want a good book. I want a cold beer and an occasional maddening cow uh, and, an, and an occasional maddened cow spreading terror in the hearts of her foes. <laughs> it's the simple pleasures, really. I mean, if the new season of Vikings doesn't have a mad magic cow, I'm going to be pretty <laughs> mad myself. Mad cow. There are a number of strange parallels here, actually, To uh, since I'm talking about it. Uh, since I'm talking about it, there are a number of strange parallels to those magic cows in Ragnar Saga. Um, mm-hmm. A cow at the head of a fighting force that spreads an unreasoning fear among opposing warriors. It's a pretty, pretty good right. parallel. Right. Well, in, and in this case, it works pretty well. A number of Skraelings are killed, but only one of them is mentioned specifically. Uh, and he's killed by a friend. One of the natives grabs a Norseman's axe and then experimentally throws it at his own companion, killing him. Oh, I hope that we talk about that one in Best Bloodshed because it's oh, pretty I, I feel confident that we will. <laughs> so the uh, the Skraelings eventually flee the fight and disappear for the winter, but Carl Zephny's group is obviously on pins and needles all winter. And by spring, Carl Zephny's had enough, and they load up their ships and return to Greenland. Right. It's, it's not exactly a glorious return, given that this was supposed to be a permanent settlement. Well, I agree, but the, the text doesn't seem to. Uh, another group actually starts planning a trip right away because we're told the trips seem to bring men both wealth and renown. And honestly, they're bringing back mm. so much wood, I think that's all that you really need. Right. No, that's significant. Uh, now, wealth, I understand, right? Because they keep coming back with their ships full, right? whether it's the wood yeah. or skins and that kind of thing, or grapes. Uh, but what exactly are these guys famous for? I mean, mm. Leif's trip went well. And the worst thing that happened was a German guy getting drunk. But but the others? <laughs> Bjarni never got off his ship. Thorstein got lost. Thorvald got killed. And Karsefni managed to start a minor war. But they, they come back with a lot of stuff, and it's all about yeah. adventuring, right? <laughs> so, well, the saga saved the best, or if, depending on your perspective, the worst, for last. Eric the mm. Red had four children, remember, and only three of them have led expeditions to Vinland. Part 6. The Voyage of Freydis Eric's Daughter. So now it's Freydis... Eric's daughter's turn. She announces her intention of leading a group, and she teams up with two Icelandic brothers named Helgi and Finnbogi. Freydis and her husband Thorvard uh, are going to take 30 men and some women in their ship, and the brothers will do the same. Right, well, that's the deal anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, What we learn in Greenlander Saga is that Freydis is sort of the inheritor of her father's personality. Her brothers all seem mm-hmm. like decent people, actually, but Freydis is a dangerous woman. Yeah, uh, she starts conniving right away. Uh, she and her husband sneak five extra men onto their ship so that they'll have the advantage of numbers over Helgi and Finnbogi. 
Mm-hmm. Then she arranges permission to use Leif's buildings in Vinland. But when the expedition arrives safely in the New World, she sneeringly tells the brothers that she doesn't intend to share the buildings with them. Now, at this point, the brothers have to be wondering why they were even asked to come along. Yes, but Freydis has a plan. Freydis always has a plan. Well, for now, her plan seems to be to act very unpleasant and overbearing, and it's working beautifully. Yes. <laughs> the brothers try to organize games between their men and Freydis' men, but there are too many disagreements, and eventually the two groups just avoid each other altogether. Right. Now, this is starting to sound a little bit more like a regular saga. Yeah. Now, these Vinland sagas are interesting, but they kind of lack the feud machinations that we like to see. Yes, they do, but uh, uh, this isn't actually going to be so much of a feud scene as something out of a horror film, but uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. At the end of winter, Freydis gets up one night and walks over to the brothers' longhouse. She and Finbogi have a long conversation, and Finbogi says that he doesn't like the coldness between their groups. Freydis tells him that she's actually planning to leave and return to Greenland. But I, I want to exchange ships with you, she says, since you have a larger ship than I do. Would that be okay? Now... Now, it should be clear that this is a very strange request. Well, absolutely it is. I mean, ships are important items, especially if you're in Vinland and your ability to get home again is tied up in the seaworthiness of your ship. And also, they're really Mm -hmm. expensive items. And Freydis is asking for the bigger and better ship in exchange for a smaller one. Well, not to mention that she managed to get two Vinland in her own ship with five extra men stowed away to boot. But now she wants to bring a shipload of lumber and goods from Vinland home with her, so she needs the space. Right, and amazingly, Finbogi agrees to switch ships. Well, presumably he's just delighted at the idea of her leaving. (laughs) I think that's exactly what's going on there. Uh, But it doesn't matter, (laughs) really, because Freydis didn't actually expect Finbogi to say yes. Right. Uh, So, once again, she's got a secret plan. But now Finbogi's messing it up by being too accommodating. I have a cunning plan. But uh, a little thing like people being nice to her, that's not going to get in the way of Freydis' way. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) She returns to her house, wakes up her husband, and tells him that Finbogi and Helgi beat her up. But you're such a coward that you will repay neither dishonor done to me or to yourself. Unless you avenge this, I shall divorce you, you slimy bastard. (laughs) So so now her plan is to get the brothers or her husband killed. Oh, well, it's much worse than that. Thorvard <laughs> can't take the abuse from Freydis anymore, so he gets his men up and they attack the brothers' longhouse before dawn. They capture the sleeping men inside, but as they bring them out, Freydis, Freydis has each of them killed. <laughs> it's awful. Right, right. Now, this is, this is just a massacre. I mean, there are 30 mm-hmm. men in that house, remember. But it's actually even worse, if I can say that yet again. Mm-hmm. There are also five women in the group. And even though Freydis' men are willing to go along with the slaughter of the men, none of them are willing to kill unarmed women. Which, we have to say, is a reasonable enough position to take. But Freydis doesn't want any witnesses, and she's not squeamish about getting her hands dirty. Her no. only response to the men's refusal is to say, Hand me an axe. Then she hacks the five women to death while her men watch in horror. She's a real monster. I think worse that's the than, idea, She's worse yeah. than Eric. Oh, she's awful. I mean, when she's done Lizzie Bordening the women, she turns to her men <laughs> with blood dripping from the axe and says, If we are fortunate enough to make it back to Greenland, I will have anyone who tells of these events killed. Hmm. We shall say that they stayed behind here when we left. And obviously everyone agrees. And Freydis' plan then becomes obvious. She wants to fill the larger ship with the goods and return home a rich woman. But, but why? Well, you see, a larger ship can carry more. Simple math, John. No, no, and in no, fact, no. she has both ships I, I, now. No, I, I, I know. But no, she can't bring both of them. Right? I mean, why kill all 35 people just to get a bigger ship? She could have just brought a second ship with her. No. Hell, she could have built another ship in Vinland. They're surrounded by trees, and she's got nearly three dozen men of her own to build it with. True, true, but this way that she's done, is it's so much easier. I mean, if you're willing to ignore the mass murder part of it, there's a certain convenience factor, you gotta admit. <laughs> she's definitely her father's daughter. Well, I, there's no denying that the plan works. Horrifying as it is, it works. She gets back to Greenland with a ship full of goods, 
And this is why she can't have two ships, right? Because she left her own ship behind so that the story about oh, the brothers that's... staying in Vinland seems plausible. Yeah. But obviously Freydis' men aren't able – you know what's so weird about this too is he said, yes, mm-hmm. take the ship. And she still killed him. Yeah, anyway. I know. <laughs> she didn't have to. She's just a monster. Uh, but it's obviously just, you Freydis know, is... given the choice, she would rather not leave them alive. <laughs> yeah. So obviously Freydis' men aren't able to keep from leaking the story of what happened. And when Leif Erikson hears about what his sister's done, he's outraged, understandably. And remember, Leif is yes. a very Christian man, so this is going to hit him pretty hard. So he tortures three of Freydis' men to get all the details of them. He's that Yeah, a good Christian. Christian man, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not unusual for Christians in the Middle Ages to do things like this. Right. Um, and, and although he's he doesn't want to punish his only remaining sibling, he, he does prophecy that no good will ever come from her or her descendants. Right. Now, I think it's interesting how the two sagas dovetail in their details. Um, we're getting to the end here, so I think we can spend a minute on this stuff. Uh, look at Freydis and her actions. Right? She kills a ship full of people and acts in a truly terrifying way. I'd say that's correct, yes. Yeah. Well, in Eric's saga, we get a very different view of her. Right? She's terrifying, but only to the Skraelings. Remember, in that saga, she's actually present in a fight with the natives. That's right. She's uh, she's the Amazon warrior lady. She uh, she mm-hmm. runs bare-chested and pregnant at the natives, slapping herself with a bloody sword and scares them all off. Pretty cool scene. Right. Yeah. So in this version, she's still bloody and scary, but the circumstances are totally different. Right? Her group doesn't even interact with any Skraelings in this version of the story. But I think there's more. In both sagas, Freydis is part of the final expedition, which consists of multiple ships. Right. But that saga ends with a tragedy at sea, when Bjarni Grimmelson's ship is beset with shipworm and starts to come apart at sea. Mm-hmm. Now, Bjarni and his uh, half of his crew uh, go down with the ship, and we had some debate about how many people to count there, didn't we? Right, exactly. Uh, but this time, one entire ship's crew is lost on land. It seems like the stories that circulated about the Vinland voyages got a little bit vague, and these authors are just filling in details as best they can. Right? There was some sort of a tragedy in which a ship's crew was lost, but how and why they died is determined by the story the writer wants to tell. And when you start to look at the two sagas that way, the same thing's happening all the way through, right? Right, no, absolutely. I mean, let's take another example. Uh, Thorvald Eriksson's death in this saga is due to an arrow in the ribs. He's the only casualty of a skirmish with the Skraelings, but that skirmish happens due to the behavior of Thorvald's men who kill eight Skraelings that they caught into their boats. It's simple and straightforward. It's a tragic consequence of circumstance and the misbehavior of his own men. And in Eric's saga, what happens? Uh, in Eric's saga, he's shot in the belly by a uniped. Ah, yes, as if I could forget that. <laughs> <laughs> so there he's a victim of a fantastic man-creature out of a medieval bestiary. Right, It plays up the otherworldliness of Vinland and helps to set the stage for those tensions between the pagan world of the past and its mythic qualities, obviously, and the, that Christian future that we saw. Yeah, the, the religious angle is really interesting to me. I mean, The prophecy about Guthrie's future mm-hmm. and the deaths of Thorstein Eriksson and Thorstein the Black's wife serve one kind of narrative in Eric's saga, uh, where the author is actually very concerned about the conversion story. This author doesn't seem terribly interested in conversion narratives at all. In fact, um, there's mm-hmm. an offhand reference to the coming of Christianity to Greenland, but the author doesn't even bother to mention Leif's role in it. Leif's the main missionary, the guy that converts Greenland altogether. Right, very true. I mean, we we counted something like a dozen specific moments in Eric's saga that were about the conversion and who was Christian, who wasn't, and why that mattered. In this story, we get like one or two references but apart from a brief mention that Eric the Red never converted, there's almost no judgment involved. And so all the story elements that connect to the conversion in Eric's saga end up connecting to other things in this version. This saga is much more interested in the expeditions to Vinland. Each participant more or less stops being relevant to the saga once he or she returns from Vinland. Right. Actually, you could make a case that Bjarni's ship is the most important recurring character in this saga. <laughs> you know, at least it goes on four of the voyages. Is that going to be your thingman, Bjarni's ship? <laughs> Seems like a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely not. If we were going to start taking inanimate objects as thingmen, one of us would have the sword Adertangi by now. 
Oh, good point. Now, uh, that is actually going to end the saga. Um, there's not much to it. It's kind of a, a quick and disappointing end, to be honest with you. Thorfinn, Karls Efni, <laughs> and Guthrith move to Iceland, and we get a rundown of their descendants. And it turns out that several important bishops are, in fact, descended from them. So there's a nod towards the Christian, I guess. Uh, but the return right. of Freydis's ship marks the end of the Vinland voyages. Well, I mean, it marks the end of the ones the saga writer is interested in anyway. Or knows about, right? Um, but that right. also means it marks the end of the ones that we're interested in now. So uh, we're going to be moving on to Judgments in Part 2 of this episode. Uh, but we're also going to try to get a special episode up with John's interview with uh, Loretta Decker of Lonsall Meadows fame. So um, we'll mm-hmm. get the, uh, the interview up next and then Judgments shortly after that. Great. And while you're waiting for those, please keep in touch with us through our Facebook and Twitter pages and let us know what you think of this episode or and, any episode for that matter. Right. And if you've got any cool uh, Vinland uh, articles or things you want us to look at or have uh, us promote for you, please send them our way. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And, uh, bye for now.